Stand tall. Stand fast. Stand firm media. Welcome to Race Relations Radio. I'm Hank, and I'm going to be joined by Rick today, and we are going to talk about institutionalized racism, among other topics, of course. Rick, how are you? I'm good. On Stanford Media, we are Christians that come together to have these challenging conversations, and so just keep that in mind when we discuss things that we're not, uh, we may get fired up over stuff, but we don't get crazy over stuff. <laughs> so, right. So, uh, well, you know, you and I know in our hearts, uh, because of our Christian beliefs, and if you look at the Bible, there is one race, the human race. We're all made in God's image. And even though over time we've gotten different appearances in skin color, among other things, you know, there's, I'll tell you an interesting story. This past week, I, I got the privilege of um, being at a reception for a missionary that we just started supporting at our church. And he's from Kenya. He was a minister there for several years, but now he's actually doing church planting and they're starting like small church groups in people's houses. And a particular strategy in Kenya is dealing with uh, Islam. And uh, they won't go to a church, but they may come to your house. So that's part of their strategy. Interesting. Okay. He told me there are 110 ethnic groups in Kenya, tribal tribal groups. They all may have the same skin tone or close to it. Mm -hmm. But he said walking down the street, he could look at three people and tell you which group they belong to by their physical appearance, by the way they dress, by the way they carry themselves, by the language they speak. And there's great division there of class and of ethnic groups looking down on other ethnic groups. Uh, it's very interesting to find out that in a nation where on the surface, on the skin, you would think everybody looks the same. Right. He said, he said we're not all the same. Okay. Interesting. Well, we are going to talk about institutionalized racism, also known as systemic racism. And um, one of the definitions that I was able to come up with or find said it is a, it's a form of racism that is allegedly embedded through laws within society or an organization. It can lead to such issues as discrimination in criminal justice, employment, housing, health care, political power, and education, among other issues. So... And that is a mouthful. Yeah. I, I believe I read that same definition okay. when I looked at it. And I, and I said, yeah, because I read three or four different ones, and there's some overlap in how they define it. It's interesting, the examples that I look at to support it from people who believe in the concept. I'll, I'll go on the record saying I don't buy that concept. Okay. I, I will say it, I'll say it this way uh, because of what Tim Scott said uh, in the Republican response to the president's speech last week. Uh, I want to read his quote so I get it correctly, okay? Because uh, I, I respect Tim Scott. Tim Scott is also a Christian. I've heard him share things from his background and of, of what he's gone through in his life. And he's talked about being black and being pulled over by the Capitol Police, those same police that, you know, are heroes because they tried to stop these rioters on January 6th. Uh, They've pulled him over, and he thinks because he's black, because he's been pulled over more than his white colleagues have. Uh, and, and he made it a point. He's, and he's also proposed uh, federal funding of body cams for police officers to help try to battle uh, what goes on. Okay, But his comment was this. He says, hear me clearly. 
America is not a racist country. It's backwards to fight discrimination with different types of discrimination, and it's wrong to try to use our painful past to dishonestly shut down debates in the present. Okay, so he does not endorse the idea of systematic racism that you can do nothing about or on the other side that you need the federal government to address and correct somehow. All right. Um, I will disagree with him on uh, it does exist, but my caveat and I get this is what I get heat for. It's not an excuse as to why you're in a circumstance or why you're in a position or why you can't do X, Y, and Z. This is something I get criticized by other blacks about is because when I was a little kid, I came home from school, went to a, it was all white school except for me, and uh, came home, some issue had happened with the teacher, and I uttered some words as, as if to say, you know, I, I, you know, it's because of that. And, and they, I'm paraphrasing here, but they said, uh, try again. Um, you know, you're, you're just never going to use that as an excuse for, for why you can't accomplish something to us. You're talking about your parents? Yep. Okay. Gotcha. I grew up going, okay, I see issues because there are real issues and we're going to get into yeah. some, I have some real life examples. Okay. And I just knew, I saw them, okay, how can I overcome them? Because if I go complain, it's going to fall on deaf ears. Okay. I really appreciate that point of view to say, yeah, something is this way, but it doesn't have to stop me from whatever it is I'm trying to do in life. Right. Uh, It may be an obstacle. It may make it harder than it would be if that obstacle wasn't there, but it doesn't make it impossible for me to do that. Correct. You're in the camp of a lot of people that I respect because, uh, I've heard similar things like, uh, there's a documentary about, uh, Justice Clarence Thomas, and he talked about his upbringing and being in real poverty and being in real racist part of the country and things that he went through. But he had a similar thing where he wouldn't let those people that would want to try to stop him, stop him from getting where he wanted to go. And, you know, look at Dr. Ben Carson. <laughs> look at, there's a lot of, a lot of great successful people who have darker skin than me that uh, didn't let whatever obstacles are there be something to stop them. Okay, don't use your obstacles as an excuse for where you are. Right. So one of the things that does put me in a pickle, though, is I have a lot of great white friends that try to tell me racism doesn't exist. All right, slow down a second. Racism doesn't exist or the idea of institutional, you know, systemic that you can do nothing but be a part of exist. I mean, there's a difference, right? Most certainly, but they, uh, they have, I've had great friends tell me for years that there is no issues whatsoever, no racism. Really? And, and now that this has come up, that there's just no evidence, even though I've given them personal uh-huh. uh, stories. All right. Let me, let me say this. Uh, I'll say two things. One, I, I would never say racism doesn't exist. It does. And I say that's because we have evil hearts. Uh, sin in our hearts causes us to do bad things. And not everybody's racist, but some people are. Uh, and I don't know what the percentages are today. Uh, I want to believe that today there's 
less racist people than there was 30 years ago or 50 years ago or 90 years ago or, uh, you know, I, I want to say we've improved over time, but I can, I wouldn't say we've eliminated it. Right. I would only say we've made progress. Uh, on the other hand, when you say you have stories, I accept that. I, I've heard stories from other friends that I have that are black too. And, and some of them, like based on what they're telling me, that's, that's all I have to go on. It sounds completely like, you know, something totally wrong happened there. And I cannot make an excuse for it or explain it or justify what happened to them as being okay. Uh, but sometimes I hear a story and then I hear a, a person's attribution to why they think the person did this to them as being their skin when there's no evidence from the story itself that their skin was a factor in what happened. For an example, an athlete, professional athlete has a, a high dollar car. His son drives it somewhere, parks it. He comes out, puts his key in his BMW and gets in the car. And a white woman opens the door, passenger door, and accuses him of being in her car. She had a very similar vehicle parked several stalls down the row, and she thought his car was her car. Now, he assumed, he says, he felt that she did this because he was black, like he was trying to steal his car because her car because he was black. But she didn't say anything to him to indicate that. She only thought he was in her car. Is that racism or not? Or is that just a misunderstanding between two people of different colors? Depends on the intent, and only the person knows. And if she opened her mouth and it, said something that was racist to him, then you could assume that that was the reason. But since that didn't happen, I have a problem with assuming that's the reason. And that's where certain stories that get cited as examples bug me because I go, but you don't know what's in that other person's head. You're, you're thinking that's the reason. And sure, it could be, but you don't know for sure. And I think it's because these issues have lingered on for so many decades mm -hmm. that it's just expected that it has something to do with that. And that's when a, you have a situation that you don't come together and have these conversations mm -hmm. about, then that's what happens. It's just over time, you just start looking for things to go wrong. Yeah. And I'm eager to hear your stories because um, uh, on a different issue that we'll discuss in some future episode, I had a friend who had a different view than I did. And I asked him why, and he gave me several different reasons. And some of them, I had rebuttals or, or I couldn't agree with his reason and others. I went, um, okay, that's something I had never considered or never thought about, or I, I never saw it that way. And it's food for thought. It's at least worth considering, you know, I'm not just going to chuck it out the window and say, you know, forget, forget that idea. I want to, I want to be thoughtful and considerate of what other people think and what other people have experienced, you know? Well, shall we dig, start digging into some of these sure. topics? So in schooling, uh, according to ED Build, they say that predominantly black school districts receive far less financial funding than white school districts of equal size. Um, would you say that that is based on millages in those areas because the in income could possibly be less? That seems likely. Uh, some people point back to uh, what they call redlining, which is something I really was unaware of until recently, and I had to learn a little bit about the history of that. Uh, and that could, in some places, still be a lasting effect or a reason why that might happen. There's a different thing at work, though, and it's part of this debate. Um, 
I don't remember how many years ago it was, but I, I thought the speaker I saw, uh, who was black, uh, it was a debate that was at Oxford, I think it was. And, uh, it was about whether or not racism, uh, systematic racism, the idea of that. And, um, he, he was not supporting that idea. And part of his argument was that the reasons for young men, uh, ending up on, in criminal activities was because of them being in fatherless households and citing that if you go back far enough in history, there was a time when 80% of black households had two parents in the home. And that's when, kids were raised well. And now when it's the opposite end of that statistic, you have a lot of fatherless homes. Take away the skin color and fatherless homes across the board, no matter what ethnicity you are, are lower in poverty, higher in rates of drug use, uh, alcohol abuse, and getting into criminal trouble. And that could be, you know, if you're in a poverty situation because of the absence of a man, that might be the deciding factor and not your skin color. And do you know that uh, back in the day, the the old days, that they would incentivize black women to not have a black man in the home? Well, I've seen it myself in certain government regulations oh. and, you know, where it's cheaper. Uh, people are better off because of things that either the federal government or the state government has done to stay unmarried, yes. uh, which is a less permanent relationship, even if you have kids together, than, you know, taking vows and making commitment to be together and to raise those kids. And shouldn't that raise some flags that the state would come up with something along that line? Yes, it should. It, it is disturbing. Yes, it's and very it, disturbing. It makes you wonder because if you remember, uh, go back and look up some quotes from Frederick Douglass and he'll talk about the reasons he's a Republican and what the Republican Party over the Democratic Party was. And we know that there's been a shift where the Klan type people supported the Democratic Party until the Civil Rights Bill was passed. When LBJ signed that bill, uh, if the Republicans were the ones that passed that bill. Most of the Democrats were opposed to it. And when the shift occurred with the, uh, the great society and the, the great uh, welfare acts that came down, that uh, started moving people. And those same Democrats that were part of that racist group were the same people that made those rules. Right. So it kind of makes you wonder. A lot of people don't know that. Yeah, a lot of people don't. <laughs> um, in Michigan, uh, we have a lot of schools that uh, uh, somewhat overlap, like school districts that come real close to if you live two houses over, you could go to this other school. Uh -huh. Well, in F the Flint area, there is one. I, I'd rather not name them. I, you know, I just have a lot of friends that watch this, the podcast and stuff, so I don't want to get people fired up too too hardcore, but... There is a certain school that is dilapidated. Um, they closed like the middle school just because it was falling apart and predominantly black. Then they've got all these like younger kids going into the high school with the older kids. Mm -hmm. And then if you just drive about a mile and a half, mm -hmm. pristine, just beautiful school. And, and you know, um, so it just leaves a bad taste in people's mouths when they say, Hey, Michigan lottery goes towards the schools and stuff. And they're like, where? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I would have to wonder on that. Like, cause the state, the lottery would be a statewide 
situation, right? So if, if statewide they say X amount of dollars goes to every school district from this lottery, uh, then if every school district is getting the same thing based on that, but then there's, say, a local bill. I mean, we have local bills every time there's a local election. Every year there's the, uh, this city school wants us to pass a, a, a referendum to allow them to raise the tax by this much in order to fund this thing that the school needs. If people vote to say, yes, we were willing to pay that tax in order to make this improvement to our school, then that school gets that improvement. But if people in another town vote, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. I I don't know how things are divided there in Flint, you know, if if one block or another has different. I wouldn't think so if they're all the same city, unless there's, you know, some some difference there. So that doesn't sound equitable, what you're describing. Uh, and it makes you wonder, like, is those schools that somehow seem to do better because they have star athletes and such as that. And, and then other schools that lag, you know, lag behind. That was one of the things a, a, a friend of mine who graduated from the school I'm talking about said is that they've won states several years in a row and they're still, they don't get funding. They don't get uh, any restoration really? and stuff. So he was very frustrated over that, but let's move on. Uh, yeah, I would dig deeper into the reason for that because this is an, it's a good point. I understand the point, but it's also one of those things where, again, it could be a case by case individual thing and not a, an overall whole system thing. Now, uh, another one from the National Center for Education Statistics says that black students and children have less access to computers and the internet. Would you <laughs> push back on that one? No, I could believe that. Because uh, black students are probably more likely to be in a lower income category at home. And it's probable then at home that they may not have discretionary funds to spend on either Internet or computers in their household. Uh, so that could be a reason why it's not happening. Uh, in a situation like that, I'm very in favor of helping those students out. Uh, with some kind of funding to make it possible for them to be on equal footing. And I wish a lot of these things could transpire without the state. Yeah, I do too. Because what we're doing is you have said problem, you have the state introduces the solution. And then mm -hmm. whenever that happens, you're either giving up rights or you're paying more taxes or something, you're giving up something, something else is going to go wrong because of that, in my opinion. It's one of the things that's happened that's the difference is when we cede to the state the responsibility to do X, then they get their fingerprints all over X. And they have some control because they say, hey, the money's coming from us. If instead we could get partnerships within the community with, say, church groups or charities, uh, organizations that want to benefit the, the individuals that need the help, uh, if we could funnel the funding through them and let them do the work, I believe they'd be much more effective than the government would in resolving the problem on a case-by-case -case basis. Because generally, uh, the case with the charity is that they're more effective in doing things than the government is. You, you don't have the bureaucracy usually to deal with, and you, and you can do it usually more cost-effectively. And I know that both the last two uh, Republican presidents have worked on partnerships with, between the government and 
businesses that are willing to donate money as part of their charitable support to nonprofit groups that will help uh, at-risk youth and, and people that are disadvantaged. Um, the only other one that I wanted to kind of touch on this time was uh, Black Americans with college degree. Oh, sorry. Wrong one. Uh, the average black college graduate leaves a public four-year institution with $111,486 in debt. That's 55% more debt than the average white college student. This is according to the American Council on Education. Now, Rick, do, do you think that that could be because going right back to incomes? Maybe. Maybe. I'm. I, that's a curious statistic to me. And I know that uh, when I listen to you read that out and, and you can cite all kinds of different things you can find on the internet about it when you're arguing something like this is um, it's, it's kind of fine tuned to a certain group. You know uh, it's talking about a four year college graduate, if I heard correctly, which well, means do, it doesn't include people who drop out nope. uh, or don't complete their course of studies. Um, and it, and, and I don't know for sure, uh, what is the average field, you know, for right. what, like what kind of a degree they're getting, because some of them are more costly than others. If you have more people going into medicine, maybe, or being lawyers or something like that, um, there can be a big cost difference between people that are going to be bankers or business managers, you know? Right. Um, so I don't really honestly know enough to say why that would be the case. Um, it makes me wonder because I know that, uh, there's black colleges out there that, you know, focus on trying to help people. I wouldn't want to think that they're, you know, charging more money than a college that's maybe more accessible for someone who's white. I mean, I don't really know where there are any white colleges to go to, you know, so that, you know, the white kids get a good education because, you know, there aren't any Asian colleges either. And, and they actually go rank ahead of whites and blacks in certain categories when you look at things. Oh, a, yeah. <laughs> a, Asian uh, college yeah. students are winning. But, but right they're now. a minority. They're winning they're a minority, right now. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I would, uh, only thing I'll push back, I would say about, um, black, having historically black colleges is because at one point there was a need for that. There was a oh, need yeah, there to was. have an institution that would even teach black people how to do anything. So right. I understood that. And I'll tell you what, at Booker T. Washington is one of my heroes. Um, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to give this away cause I mentioned his name, but I, but I heard a quote cited by Larry Elder. So I went and looked it up so I could read it for you. And think about this. This was said more than 100 years ago. And think about our current political climate. And part of the topic that we're talking about, I, I think this would pertain. It's, it's not a real short quote, but, but uh, it's short enough. I think I can say it. This is from Booker T. Washington. He said, there is another class of colored people who make a business of keeping the troubles, the wrongs and the hardships of the Negro race before the public. Having learned that they are able to make a living out of their troubles, they've grown into the settled habit of advertising their wrongs, partly because they want sympathy and partly because it pays. Some of these people do not want the Negro to lose his grievances because they do not want to lose their jobs. I tell you, when I hear stuff like that and I think about Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton, these, these men who profited all the way through and mind you 
when Martin Luther King was killed, Jr. was killed, mm-hmm. and when uh, Malcolm X was killed, and right. other black leaders, they just came out unscathed to this day. Mm-hmm. So if you're mm-hmm. really fighting a cause, wouldn't you be on at the top of the list? You would think so. It should make other blacks think. And and in, in those two that you mentioned are high profile in the news, and I've been well aware of them for a long time. And one thing about them that I'll say is this, nothing that is accomplished is ever good enough. They have always got another grievance and another complaint and another way of saying that we aren't in a good enough place because they could never stop. And I don't see speeches where they talk about the great progress that we've made. Why can't you say we've made great progress? We still need to do more. Fine. We do need to do more. We're always going to need to do more. But And we're always going to need to do more because in, in at the core, again, it's a sin issue. It, our hearts, until we're all united under Christ, there's always going to be division. Satan wants to stir up division. <laughs> Most certainly. And um, I, I would be so curious to see how much they make. Yeah, I, it would be interesting if there was an audit. <laughs> we recently had that situation with the Black Lives Matter. We're going to close up this topic for today, but we're going to keep it going. We got lots more to, to cover. But um, yes. So we'll come back with part two, probably part three and part four. Um, but uh, I just wanted to quickly talk about that uh, Black Lives Matter uh, founder that went and bought, what was a $1.4 million property by uh, an acquaintance of mine. I didn't bother reading much about it. I have an acquaintance that lives back in that area. And yeah. it's a very exclusive area and very expensive. But how ironic that she can afford to buy property, not, not even just a home, but a second home or third home, whatever it is. I, I think it's an interesting thing that on the uh, Black Lives Matter website last year, when I went and looked at it, they had a a number of statements about their beliefs. And one of them was basically endorsing any kind of uh, transgender, whatever you want to be. And they actually denounced the nuclear family. And uh, it, w- it was very yep. radical sounding yep. and they got some heat from it and it got publicized and then they actually took that off their site. So yep. it's not on there anymore. Yeah. I, I read that and it was, uh, uh, yeah. Turning the patriarchy mm-hmm. on its head right. and all that stuff. And I'm like, you know, and if you, if you want to blame the historical family unit as somehow being part of what's wrong with our country, I I think you've got it completely backwards. I think if we had more of the nuclear family with a man and a woman that are married and raise their children to adulthood together, I think those kids are going to be much better off in life than those kids that are raised by whatever other situation you want to throw in there. Most certainly. You know, and if you want people to have an advantage to, you know, most parents want their kids to have a better life than them. And, and there's no skin color attached to that desire. You know, that's, it's universal. And, and when, when kids are little and you go on a playground with a couple two-year-olds, kids play with other kids. They don't care if they're black, Mexican, Asian, white, Nope. you know, don't. Uh, somewhere later in life, they learn to distance themselves from people because of whatever they're taught or whatever they experience, but it's not natural. Their, their natural tendency when is just, you know, we're yep. all, we're all together. We're people all people. people. We're all the same, you know? So. All right. Well, that is going to do it for this edition of race relations. 
Radio. We are going to come back with another episode, a continuation episode. A battle will continue. Uh, but Rick, thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome. Until the next time, for Rick, I'm Hank. We're going to be signing off. Stand tall. Stand fast. Stand firm media.